Hello, and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Devorah Goldman. And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. In each podcast, Devorah and I interview the authors of one of the essays published in our journal. Today, we're very fortunate to be speaking to Professor Diana Schaub, one of the great modern scholars of American political thought, who has contributed to both National Affairs and to our predecessor journal, The Public Interest, on many occasions. Diana is Professor of Political Science at Loyola University, Maryland, and co-editor uh, with Amy and Leon Cass of What So Proudly We Hail, The American Soul and Story, Speech, and Song. Um, Diana's excellent essay in our spring 2014 issue is titled Lincoln at Gettysburg. In this essay, she discusses the significance of Lincoln's extraordinary Gettysburg Address, which she says, quote, must rank high among the greatest speeches anywhere. Welcome, Diana. To begin, you suggest that one of the potential pitfalls in learning about the Gettysburg Address is simply that we know it too well. Would you speak a bit about that? Uh, yes. Uh, of course, I do want people to know the Gettysburg Address well, <laughs> uh, and I've actually been disturbed to find that not all of my students can recite it from memory. I think there probably was a point in American history where most Americans could recite it from memory or at least the opening line. Uh, so it's good to know it well, but there is a problem if the mode of knowing it is simply the mode of recitation. Uh, I like recitation. <laughs> Uh, Lincoln said that uh, you know the world would little note nor long remember what what they said there that day. Uh, it's good that we still do note and remember it, but we have to go beyond that. Uh, we have to really think it through. Uh, we have to take it apart. We have to study it, and it seems to me that is probably not what is happening. Uh, so we'll talk a bit later about uh, the address itself and some of the language, but we wanted to kind of set the scene first uh, before we do that. Um, so obviously the three-day Battle of Gettysburg, that takes place in July 16, 1863, early 1863. Um, and maybe later we kind of viewed it as a turning point in the Civil War, but maybe at the time it wasn't viewed that way. Um, the Confederates flee the field on the 4th, uh, and then months later Lincoln goes back to the, the battlefield site, um, November 1863, to give this address. Um, and it's, it's sort of a war speech, but I don't know if students think of it that way today. Could you talk a little bit about why is, what is the purpose of this speech? Why is Lincoln going back here to dedicate it? And how is it a war speech? And is that different than how we think of it today? Uh, yeah. So the speech was, uh, he was not the main speaker. Uh, the main speaker at the event was Edward Everett, who gave a long two-hour address <laughs> uh, from memory. Uh, and Lincoln just gave some fitting closing remarks. Uh, but it was to dedicate the cemetery at Gettysburg in honor of the battle there. So it had uh, been a, uh, a victory for the Union, but uh, also a devastating battle. It actually had the highest casualty rate of the war. Uh, one third of the participants on both sides uh, became casualties in that, in that battle. Uh, so there were 3,000 Union dead, 4,000 plus Confederate dead, uh, 5,000 horses and mules. Uh, these carcasses had to be disposed of. So uh, in that period between the battle and the dedication of the cemetery, the people of Gettysburg had actually been engaged in this enterprise of uh, uh, bringing up the, the bodies. Uh, so so in, the, uh, in this interim, the people of Gettysburg have um, 
brought up the bodies from the ground, uh, sorted the Confederates from the Union dead, reburied the Confederates where they fell in those shallow graves to be recovered after the war. Um, then they sorted the Union dead into their regiments, uh, properly buried them, and now this cemetery was being dedicated. In that context, what would that speech have meant under those circumstances? You know, there's obviously tremendous carnage all around for months in, in Gettysburg, and the reburying of these bodies was traumatic for, for everyone. So what would the impact have been? Yeah, so there was a problem with northern morale, uh, in part mm. because of the devastating toll of the war and because the battles on the whole had been not been going too well to this point. So it seems to me that's the, the real problem that Lincoln is facing. Uh, and of course, just the, the ceremony itself fits within a long tradition of uh, funeral orations. So going all the way back to Pericles in the first year of the, of the Peloponnesian War. Mm. Um, you also sure. mentioned that this speech is distinguished from those other immortal speeches, including the oration of Pericles and the apology of Socrates, because Lincoln wrote and delivered it himself. With, with no editorial assistance. Indeed, yes. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, uh, yeah so uh, those other speeches, the Apology of Socrates and the Funeral Oration of Pericles, uh, they are based on historical events. Uh, we believe that, that both of those things happened, but we do get them through the filtering and shaping of Plato, who recreates uh, Socrates' uh, uh, defense speech, and through Thucydides, who gives us his version of Pericles' address. Right. Uh, you mentioned uh, Edward Everett. Uh, yeah. So, you know, obviously he speaks for two hours before even Lincoln gets up there. Lincoln gives this address, 272 words, 10 sentences, very brief. But I, I, don't know, I, I assume maybe you've read, I don't know how many people have actually read Everett's speech. I actually brought part of it oh, with okay. me. Oh, here we go. This oh, is fantastic. I wanted to look it up because I had, you know, read through it a long time ago. Not too many people have read it. Sure. Uh, and in that sense, you know, let, let, people always note the irony of uh, Lincoln's line, the world will little note, no longer remember what we say here. Remember, Lincoln spoke at the end of the ceremony. They'd been there for three hours. <laughs> they did forget been, what happened. Yeah, and, and that's forgotten. <laughs> Nobody remembers what Edward Everett said or the minister or the hymns that were yeah, sung. He was right, yeah. That really is all forgotten. So, um, yeah, Edward Everett was a worthy American. He hmm. was a uh, Harvard-educated president of Harvard, uh, served in various elective offices, served as uh, secretary of state. Hmm. Uh, he was the greatest uh, orator of his day. He was the inheritor of the mantle of Daniel Webster, old man eloquent himself. <laughs> uh, and, it, and it is quite a, quite a speech. Hmm. I, I did a word count of just his second paragraph, <laughs> and it is 374 words, much longer than Lincoln's entire right. address. And in that second paragraph, he has not gotten anywhere at Gettysburg yet. <laughs> he is back in Athens, and he talks about the funeral, the funeral rites uh, for, the, uh, for the war dead, uh, you know, Pericles' speech commemorates. Um, you know, I, I just read that Everett really wanted to sort of launch a new form of American oratory that seemingly Lincoln actually succeeded in doing. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, when you read this, it is, it is so ornate, uh, so flowery. It's, it's not the new American oratory. It's hmm. very much the old American hmm. oratory. But reading it, you do get a sense of why some people, when they first encountered Lincoln's speech and writing 
thought he was uncouth or thought he was ill-educated. He really was speaking a new, plain style. Hmm. That turns out to be much more timeless than the, than the Edward Everett style. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Um, you also point out that the Gettysburg Address is an unusual war speech because um, Lincoln never directly mentions the enemy, even though they were clearly all around and well-known to everyone there. Would you mind speaking a bit about that? Yeah. And so this is a, you know, a contrast to Pericles because Pericles um, puts front and center the contrast between Spartan ways and Athenian ways. That's a foreign war. Uh, it's easier to talk about the enemy. Uh, Lincoln is fighting a civil war, and he doesn't want to say anything that will imperil the possibility of reconciliation after the war. So it seems to me that's, that's part of the reason that he doesn't use a word like, like the enemy. But I, I, I think his reasoning goes beyond that because the entire speech is characterized by this tremendous abstraction. So there are almost no proper nouns. Hmm. Right? I mean, he doesn't speak of the North and the South. He doesn't speak of the Union. Uh, he doesn't speak of the Confederacy. Uh, he doesn't speak of Gettysburg. He just abstracts from all of that, and I think that's part of its lasting power. It's why everyone in every generation in every land around the world can somehow see their, mm. their struggle, their national struggle, subnational struggles. Uh, they can see themselves in these words. Right. And by contrast, Everett read a list of the names of the dead. Uh, y yeah, and... Actually, he gives delved into the particulars. <laughs> he he gives long lists of of many names. He goes through, uh, <laughs> you know, the English rebellions, and he gives all of those names and dates. Yeah, uh, I, I do find that students don't immediately see it as a war speech. Mm. Uh, they know that Lincoln is known for his kindliness. Uh, they maybe have heard the line, you know, with charity towards all. Mm. And they read the second inaugural backwards into the Gettysburg Address. So they think that somehow he is reaching out to both sides in this speech, that he's trying to bring about peaceful or diplomatic resolution. Uh, and I think that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the speech. But it's one that students are led to in part because he doesn't talk about, about the enemy. Uh, but, the, uh, but the enemy are present there by implication. So Lincoln says that uh, we are, yeah, Lincoln says that uh, we have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. There are others who gave their lives that that nation might perish. Right. So he is, he is drawing a contrast between the honored dead and those dead who struggled there who are, who are not being honored. Uh, but he doesn't want in any way to, to demonize the, the Confederacy or the, the, or the Southerners. Right. So what, what makes it a war speech then? Uh, that its main purpose is to rally the North to stay the course. So, and, and that, uh, I think, explains the pivot of the speech mm. where he pivots from... <laughs> the words, right, which really can't do the task mm -hmm. of commemoration. Right. He pivots yeah. from the lamentation. Right. The problem is if you remain with the lamentation, uh, that's the problem of grief, and, and it's, it's morale sapping. So he needs to pivot that from that, and he pivots to the cause 
for which they gave the last full measure of devotion was to put that cause front and center. And of course, um, he's obviously giving a, a speech at a very specific time and place, but um, that cause, that task is something that would extend for well into the future for many, for many generations hence from that. Um, how does you talk about that pivot? How does he so effectively pivot from this particular battle and this time in the war to this is a task that Americans will have to fulfill for generations hence after that? Yeah, he, he basically does it by telling them they can't do what they came to do. Hmm. They cannot hallow that ground. Uh, it's, uh, it's a kind of amazing moment. <laughs> They're there to express their grief. And he tells them, we can't remain here amidst this grief. Uh, so he tells them the only proper way to commemorate the dead is to be devoted to, to victory, to be devoted to mm -hmm. the cause of self-government, that mm -hmm. they have to put forth the same effort. So I, I think actually that he is being sincere in the depreciation of words that the speech expresses. <laughs> Even though this is now a world-famous speech, uh, it is a speech that in a way became a deed or a speech that inspired deeds. Absolutely. And yeah. I, I think it's the case that if the Union had not been victorious, uh, we not only wouldn't remember Edward Everett's speech, we, we wouldn't remember Lincoln's speech either. So part of the lasting power of the speech depends on Lincoln's success in in rallying the North, Re in recommitting them to the cause. Um, you also invoked uh, Lincoln's Lyceum Address, which he delivered 25 years before Gettysburg when he was quite a young man. And you quote him as saying that the silent ar artillery of time destroys living history, the kind of history that bears, quote, the indubitable testimonies of its own authenticity in the limbs mangled and the scars of wounds received. And Lincoln argued that a more enduring substitute for patriotic attachment had to be found since the memory of the scenes of the revolution was fading. What enduring substitute for patriotism is he talking about there, do you think? Good question. Uh, yeah, so in the, in the Lyceum Address, he, he is looking for other pillars. He doesn't think the memory of the scenes of the revolution will be sufficient to inspire future generations that you need that living history, right? Uh, and that living history is, is disappearing. So it seems to me that uh, what Lincoln turns to in the Lyceum Address, he's pretty explicit about this. He says, you know, passion is not going to help us. Uh, passion helped us uh, achieve the revolution, helped us get our country, but passion is not going to be, uh, is not going to underwrite the continuance of the country. And what we need is reason. She says, cold, calculating, unimpassioned reason. Uh, but he wants that reason to be reworked into uh, general intelligence, uh, reverence for the laws, uh, the spirit of law-abidingness. So that's what he uh, appeals to in the Lyceum Address. And I think it's a very uh, serious question whether he he remains with that position or whether that position undergoes some modification as a mm. result of the, uh, of the Civil War and the experience of the Civil War. But I, I do think it's true that uh, throughout his career, 
he remains committed to trying to revive these texts. So at the time of the Lyceum Address, the texts that matter are the Constitution and the laws. That's what he calls for, reverence for the Constitution mm. and the laws. Uh, but he's writing then in the 1830s. That's before the real peak of the crisis of the House divided. And in the 1850s, it becomes clear to Lincoln that the Constitution is not going to be sufficient. It, it ought to be sufficient <laughs> if people were dedicated constitutionalists, but uh, the nation is coming apart at the seams. And in both the North and the South, you're seeing an abandonment of constitutionalism. And you're seeing a denial of the fundamental principles on which the regime was based. So at that point, Lincoln goes to the originating text, the Declaration, and throughout the 1850s, his appeal is to the Declaration. And in speech after speech, he gives sort of explications of the meaning of the Declaration and especially the meaning of that central equality principle. And so you see him, uh, that, that all reaches a kind of culmination in the Gettysburg Address and especially in the opening sentence where he gives a one-sentence condensation of the, the meaning of America. Do you think the living history might be embedded in the text then, particularly? Yes. Yeah. And for those texts to remain alive, uh, you have to read them and reread them and read them more deeply. And it seems to me that's what Lincoln does. He goes mm. back to the Declaration and he reads it more deeply even than the founders themselves did. So he's he's Jefferson made sublime. Uh, a lot of times, you know, people like to have this debate: uh, Is Lincoln engaged in some kind of refounding mm. or not? I I sort of don't like that formulation. I I think he is being faithful to the founding. He certainly always stresses that fidelity to the founding and the founding principles. But by returning in the way that he does, he deepens our understanding of those original principles. So less of a, a refounding than a, a conservation of the original revolutionary idea. Yeah, but a, a conservation that that in in that that is also a deepening. Right. Yeah, a conservation Absolutely. that is also a deepening, right. and that actually means that there will be ramifications for the future so right. that it is out of his fidelity to the past that that itself becomes the engine of future progress. So I think that's able to explain how Lincoln is both so conservative and so liberal yeah. <laughs> and why he is in a way able to unite both sides of the partisan divide. Uh, both sides appreciate him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you also note that um, he doesn't use a lot of language like revolution or independence. Obviously, um, the rebellion, the Confederate rebellion, could view themselves as sort of revolutionaries. I think he wants to stay away from that. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, this is not the moment to be celebrating <laughs> revolution. <laughs> uh, so I, I think that does have an effect on how he presents the founding. He gives it a gentle or generative nature rather than a violent or revolutionary nature. So, uh, in, the, in the first inaugural, Lincoln made clear that what the secessionists were doing was not a legitimate revolution. And in fact, 
for the most part, that is not how they tried to defend themselves. They argued that there was a constitutional right of secession and that that is what they were exercising, not a revolutionary right to, you know, to, to separate. It was, it was not an act of, uh, of revolution. But Lincoln can't, on this occasion, go into those differences between a legitimate revolution and an unjustified rebellion. Uh, and so I, I think that partly influences the way in which he casts the, uh, the nation's beginning. Um, so talk to us a bit about the first paragraph of the address, which you call a doozy, technical term there, um, and that it has three distinct kind of metaphors in there of conception, birth, and baptism. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. And I, this is really owing to Leon Cass, who has uh, articulated this very nicely in a speech that he gave on the Gettysburg Address. So there do seem to be these three distinct moments. Uh, they're given a little bit out of order. And, uh, if you think of the um, metaphor here, uh, first comes conception, and the nation was conceived in liberty. Uh, that itself is a very evocative and rich phrase, although precisely what it means uh, re requires a little bit more work. So this moment of conception, uh, and then the actual birth, right? The fathers bring forth the new nation. So here you actually have the the fathers in the in the mother's role. Um, and then the final moment is that this new nation is dedicated, uh, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And you could uh, analogize that to baptism. Okay. So you have conception, birth, and baptism. And then, of course, the, in the structure of the speech overall, you move from this moment of birth to death and the predominance of death in the whole middle section of the speech. And then at the end, you get the new birth of freedom. So you have birth, death, rebirth. Uh, uh, I was in a discussion uh, recently with a, with a group of folks about this, uh, about this speech, and mm. they saw that rebirth as resurrection. Hmm. Well, you note that he does, um, he does seem to invoke both the Hebrew and Christian Bible quite a lot. Um, and you actually mentioned that there's some parallels between stories of King David and, and his son Absalom. You mentioned William Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom. Uh, yeah, this, uh, I don't know if this is a stretch or not, but uh, Lincoln was a very, very serious student of the Bible. And it seems to me that that phrase, conceived in liberty, um, has a kind of echo in it of conceived in sin. Uh, conceived in sorrow, both of which are terms that are used uh, on a number of occasions in the in the Old Testament. So, although in reading it we we cherish this description, right? Conceived in liberty, that that sounds all good. Uh, what I tried to argue is that there may be a darker note underneath that, uh, and a kind of recognition that sometimes when people act in liberty, they also. <laughs> They also make bad choices. Right. Having uh, liberty isn't necessarily a good thing. Con yeah. Conceived in sin, conceived in sorrow. And Lincoln himself had used the phrase conceived in violence in uh, 1854, uh, I think, to maybe 18, 1855. Yeah, a letter to his friend Joshua Speed uh, in talking about the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. And he said it was conceived in violence. Mm -hmm. um, why do you think he chose to incarnate liberty in that way? 
Yeah, it is uh, capitalized. It is the only other capitalized word other than God in the in the address. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's a kind of personification of liberty. Um, it is the I don't know all imp all important conception, the idea, the thing that gave rise to everything that comes after. Uh, at one point in the article, I try to speculate a little bit about what conceived in liberty might mean, and here again, I'm kind of in conversation with, with Leon Cass. Um, might be three possibilities, right? Uh, conceived uh, out of a love of liberty, right? The way a child might be conceived in love. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just conceived in, in liberty and conceived in a love of liberty. Uh, it might mean that the nation was conceived in an act of liberty, Right. That's the revolution, <laughs> an act. Right? You, you make a choice, uh, conceived in an act of liberty. Uh, and then finally, another possibility that liberty is not always specifically democratic. Uh, this is an argument that Tocqueville makes, that liberty can exist in aristocratic orders. And there was such a thing as English liberty that the colonists enjoyed. So conceived in liberty might mean conceived out of that matrix of English liberty, out of the womb of English liberty. And, and those three ideas about what conceived in liberty means, um, are they compatible? Could, 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 uh, there, could there be one they coherent are, view? Yeah, there? I or do no? think they are compatible. They mm -hmm. may just be aspects of, of, yeah. of, the, of, of the revolution. Right? Right. Uh, the colonists right. act out of a love of liberty in one decisive act of liberty. And their ability to do that comes partly from their English English inheritance. Right. So yeah, I do think I do think those mm. are compatible. Mm. Um, you also argue that Lincoln considers the Declaration of Independence rather than the Constitution to be our nation's foundational text. Would you explain why? Yeah, uh, they're both t terribly important. They they belong together. You want to keep them together. Uh, but the Declaration does come first and is the more principled document. So he has this little fragment on government where he talks about the relationship between the Declaration and the Constitution. And he describes the Declaration as the apple of gold uh, surrounded by the, the frame or the picture of, of silver. And that seems right. Um, I mean, the Constitution sets forth a frame of government. But the reason for that frame is to give effect to certain aims and goals and principles. And you can see that even in the preamble itself. You could say that the phrase, we the people, <laughs> carries the entire argument of the Declaration mm. into the Constitution. So, uh, and that is actually another phrase that Lincoln will recur to often, we the people, and he does it in the sense at the very end of the Gettysburg Address when he speaks of government of the people, by the people, and for the people. That's a kind of uh, explication of we, the people. It contains and a declaration within it. Yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, you mentioned earlier that um, when he's given the Lyceum Address as a younger man, he's a little more focused on the rule of law and the Constitution, but it, do you think, is it was it the Civil War and as that crisis sort of developed, that caused him to think more about the Declaration? He pondered more about it? He studied it more? Was was that kind of one of the causes of why he started focusing more on the Declaration later in his career? 
Yeah, I think the main reason he has to focus more on the Declaration is because uh, many Southerners have taken to uh, denouncing the Declaration. So as soon as you have people asserting that the notion of human equality is not a self-evident truth, but instead a self-evident lie, <laughs> then you've, you've got to go back to the beginning and uh, show people where they, where they went wrong. Uh, Lincoln spoke of an insidious debauching of the American mind that he traced mm. to John C. Calhoun and the uh, assertion that the truths of the Declaration are self-evident lies. Um, moving on a bit from our discussion of liberty, you also talked about equality, and you wrote that Lincoln says the nation is dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, equal whereas liberty is linked backwards to the nation's conception, equality is more prospective. It involves dedication. As in the moment of christening or baptism, the infant nation is placed on a certain path. Would you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah. Um, Lincoln truly believes, I think, that, um, that all men are created equal in the fundamental sense that they're entitled to certain rights, certain natural rights. And he believed that the founders believed that as well. Uh, this comes through very clearly in a section uh, where he explicates the Declaration of Independence in the Dred Scott speech. Mm. Uh, speech from uh, 1857. So he says uh, of the founders, this they said and this meant. <laughs> All men are created equal. <laughs> uh, but he also says they did not mean that they were immediately going to confer that equality on them. And he says they were in no position to do so. They had no power to confer such a good. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was unclear whether the uh, whether the founders were going to vindicate their own rights. <laughs> they had to win an eight-year-long revolutionary war in order to vindicate their own rights before they could go about uh, vindicating anyone else's or or e extending the protection of government to the to the rights of others. So, uh, I think Lincoln Lincoln believes that this does. Um, set the nation on a certain trajectory. But that trajectory is limited by circumstances. And most especially, that trajectory is limited by public opinion. So part of the meaning of the equality principle is that governments are founded upon consent. But the problem is that majorities don't always use their consent in wise ways. They don't use their consent in ways that recognize the reciprocal rights of others. So the task, really, of democratic statesmanship is to get them to see their inconsistency and to bring them through their own consent to acknowledge the equal rights of others. And so that is the battle that he's engaged in throughout the 1850s, and he gets far enough in that that he wins the election, uh, but the election triggers the secession of those who no longer subscribe to either the equality principle or the consent principle. Uh, in other words, they, the South acted to invalidate a constitutionally uh, legitimate election because they no longer accepted the principle of majority rule. So I think you have a phrase in there that the Declaration's truths are intertwined. Yeah. So 
once the the South rejects the idea of um, all men are created equal, then they then the whole edifice starts to crumble. They can reject any other principle, including majority rule, rule of law, constitutionalism, all those things. Yeah, you you also see them uh, rejecting other um, rights like rights of free speech. They've been active for a long time in denying rights of free speech to uh, abolitionists, and we're beginning to take that even further, uh, basically saying it was illegitimate to say anything bad about slavery. Uh, Lincoln says that they're really trying to silence the moral sense of the nation. So you also, you also noted that Lincoln referred to human equality as a proposition rather than a self-evident truth. Um, so that, I guess, might go along with the idea that it's forward-looking. Yeah, although... Uh, here again, there's a, you know, a debate about why the shift from axiom or self-evident truth to proposition. And remember that Lincoln was a student of Euclid, and he knew the difference between an axiom and a proposition. <laughs> and there are plenty of other passages that you can cite from Lincoln where he does speak of the axioms and definitions of free society uh, in describing precisely this line from the Declaration. So the question might be, why does he shift from the language of axiom to the language of proposition? Um, I suggest in the article that it's not that he no longer believes in the axiomatic character of the truth of equality. It's that he recognizes that the nation as a whole no longer believes in it. Uh, Southerners, the secessionists, uh, no longer believe in it. And that, in a way, in effect, moves the statement from the realm of axiom to the realm of proposition. It now has to be defended, has to be defended concretely. Uh, and this may just show that there's a difference between <laughs> mathematical truths and political truths. Yeah. I mean, you, can't, you can't shift a mathematical <laughs> truth from one category to another. Uh, it, it shows in a way that, that uh, you can't really fully understand politics by, by thinking through mathematics. And that's why I think partly he layers onto this speech uh, another type of speech, religious speech, uh, which is very different from the mathematical speech. So it, it, it's interesting. There, there are two, two kind of sets of terms and language here. Yeah, very interesting. Um, to dwell on that language just a little more, um, you also noted that as early as the Lyceum Address, Lincoln described the founders as experimental scientists or mathematicians who were drawn to an unproven proposition. So what were they attempting to prove? Uh, they were attempting to prove the capability of a people to govern itself, self-government. And that is, I think, most fundamentally what this speech is about also. So that cause, that task right, to which he is rallying the nation is the task of self-government. And if the nation can maintain itself against this giant rebellion, uh, it will have uh, gone a long way to proving the proposition that that societies of men are really capable of self-government. And that's obviously, that's something that goes beyond just the founding of America. And, and you mentioned a couple of times, um, Lincoln's 1861 message to Congress, he says, mm -hmm. quote, this issue embraces more than the fate of these United States. And then obviously in the Gettysburg Rejects, he says, this is, this great civil war is a test. Um, the idea that um, the failure of the American experiment now would mean popular government couldn't be possible anywhere else in the future, self-government. Um, could you talk a little bit about how Lincoln kind of expands the scope beyond just the American kind of regime? Yeah. Um, 
So on the, on the one hand, it is just one little experiment, right? If that little experiment failed, would it really mean the end of popular government altogether? But the conditions for this experiment were so favorable <laughs> <laughs> that if, if the United States can't, can't last, uh, it really would be very unlikely that popular government elsewhere would be, would be successful. Uh, so I think he's very serious about this, that the, the test is a twofold test. It is a test of this particular nation, right? Can this nation founded on these principles survive? But the, the larger test is, um, as he says, whether any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. And note that he repeats both of those things, right? A nation so conceived and so dedicated and it's something they all wanted. Yeah. Yeah, I think that also explains a, a kind of a, a funny thing that he says. He says, now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation, again, the, the abstraction or the distancing, he doesn't say our nation, yeah. whether that it's nation. It's almost unpatriotic in yeah, a way. Yeah, why, why does he say that nation? Yeah. I, I think he says that nation because he means that nation as I have just defined it in the sentence above. That nation and no other. Right. Taking right. a historical perspective on it. Yeah, yeah. What, whatever your view of what America is, is that that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about <laughs> that nation as I just gave it. A, yeah. a nation dedicated uh, in a certain way, conceived in a certain way. Um, so what is a great lesson of peace in the Gettysburg Address then? Ah, yeah, so it's a war speech, right? And I've insisted that it's a Indeed. war speech <laughs> and, a, and a rallying speech. But... Um, Lincoln made clear that he had called out the war power of the nation uh, to give this lesson of peace. And the lesson of peace is that democratic nations must operate through ballots, not bullets. Once you've agreed to be bound by ballots, there can be no recurrence back to bullets. And that is what the secessionists have, have done. They've said, we don't like the results of this election, and uh, we are going to have recourse to bullets. And so Lincoln believes that if the, if the uh, secessionists are defeated, that that will be a great lesson of peace, uh, teaching, teaching everyone that, uh, <laughs> that that option is not available. Mm -hmm. That is not a legitimate yeah. democratic option. I mean, that's such an important lesson, too. I mean, we think about Venezuela today, for example, or other regimes that are very close to maybe collapsing by the bullet rather than the ballot. Uh, I mean, for Lincoln to really stress that at that time, as you said, the conditions are very favorable in America. For it to crumble at that time would have been devastating, again, not just for America, but for future countries. Uh, yeah, and for the Confederacy itself. <laughs> uh, Georgia threatened to secede from the Confederacy when the Confederacy instituted a draft. Uh, a kind of proof that Lincoln was right, that the idea of secession, uh, if you enshrine that, that that really is the principle of anarchy. And of course, there are three resolutions that Lincoln lays out, um, that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. Um, what is the significance of each of these sort of backward and forward-looking resolutions? Yeah, it's a, a long sentence <laughs> and a complex sentence with many clauses. So you have these um, three clauses at the end, all of which relate to resolve. 
And so that's active. Right? You have to resolve this. We're going to carry through. We're going to act on our resolution. So two of these are shall nots. And I try to argue that, again, this shows the balance in Lincoln between the kind of preservative or conservative elements in his thought and the forward-looking. So even though it is about the future, right, what you are trying to do is make sure that the dead shall not have died in vain. You owe something to them. You, you owe something to their sacrifice. Um, so he's, he's trying to generate that, that link. So not only are we to be linked to the founders, but we are to be sort of linked, uh, linked to those, those most recently um, you know, engaged in this, uh, this action for the nation. Um, and then the last one also is, um, is quite conservative, right? <laughs> that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. We are just trying to survive. We are just trying to keep this going. Right? The task is one of maintenance. Uh, and that takes you right back again to the Lyceum uh, Address, the opening sentence of the Lyceum Address. He says, my topic for the evening is the perpetuation of our political institutions. So he is interested in that task of perpetuation. Uh, but then the middle one. Uh, the middle one, uh, I think, uh, introduces something new, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom. Uh, That's conservative. Uh, yeah, but but conservative in the sense that it results from fully living out the dedication okay. to equality. So so even there, there is a there is that element of of fidelity. Mm -hmm. And what is the new birth of freedom? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> People have written books another, on that. I think right now. <laughs> uh, another uh, great great phrase. Uh, we might. Might just start by noting how it's related to that first sentence. Uh, in the first sentence, it was the nation that was born. It was a new nation. Now, what's born is freedom, a new birth of freedom. Then you'd also have to ask, well, what's the relationship between freedom and those two high concept words from the first sentence, liberty and equal? So often we think of freedom as just a synonym for liberty. But I'm not sure that's precisely what he means here. I, I think he actually means that the, the new birth of freedom is now uh, the, the greater achievement of equality in liberty. In other words, the new birth of freedom brings together both liberty and equality. At the time of the founding, those were not not yet fully brought together. So it is, it is a reference, you know, in part, it's a reference to the Emancipation Proclamation, right, which has now been in effect for almost a year, uh, and the knowledge that if the Union is victorious, that uh, slavery will be at an end, and that will be a new birth of freedom. Through this new for fusion. Four million new, newly freed men. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not only that, I think it's also that if you vindicate the majority principle and deliver that great lesson of peace, uh, that lesson about ballots and bullets and the priority of, of ballots, that itself will also be a new birth of freedom.
also uh, in that second clause there, um, under God, uh, Lincoln, obviously, it seemed like, especially with his later speeches, there was more and more religious language. Uh, Why do you think he inserts it in this address, uh, particularly? Yeah, there's a great deal of discussion about whether Lincoln's religious sentiments uh, deepen during the war. There's Hmm considerable evidence that they do, at at least his use of religious language increases. And this is one instance of that. It's also apparently a late edition. It doesn't uh, appear in the draft that he brought with him to Gettysburg, but uh, all of the newspaper transcriptions report it as having been said, and Lincoln's final copy of the Declaration contains it. So uh, what do we make of it? Well, there is um, an earlier reference to the divine in the Gettysburg Address uh, in the quote from the Declaration, right? All men are created equal. Uh, That is an invocation of of the creator. But this phrase seems to me, at least, to be more active um, because now the nation itself is under God. This nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. So it, it does suggest um, kind of superintendence of God. It maybe suggests that there are limits on what nations can do if they if they accept living under God. So it's a, a, a source maybe of democratic constraint. Mm. Uh, and then it serves to set the stage for the second inaugural and his, the account that he gives there of the meaning of the Civil War uh, as God's punishment upon a sinning nation. Uh, God is punishing the nation for the crime of American slavery. And that's, I mean, that's different than the Declaration in a sense, right? Because the Declaration talks about nature's God, which seems a little more distant. But, I mean, Lincoln's bringing God a little closer to the fate of the nation here. Yeah, although... Um, you know, the first references to the divine in the Declaration are more in that kind of Jeffersonian tradition. Uh, but there are a couple of other references mm-hmm. to the divine in the Declaration at the end that speak of God as the great judge and speak of providence, uh, although those were additions by the, by the Continental Congress mm-hmm. and not in Jefferson's draft. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Makes sense. To go back for just a moment to um, the last resolution of Lincoln about government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish, that perhaps particularly conservative component in his speech. Um, you note that survival is not a small aim, even though it might seem easy to just perpetuate something. Even though that might be a conservative thing, it actually could be rather earth-shaking. Um, would you yeah. delve into a bit about that and perhaps the moral content in that resolution? Yeah, because... Self-government is not easy, <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, it's easy to lose it and to let it slip away. So uh, I think this is something that has been on Lincoln's mind since the very beginning, since the Lyceum Address. <laughs> uh, it's, the, it's the question of succeeding generations and what are their duties and responsibilities and and what, is, what are their possibilities for greatness? So you, you might say that the, you know, the, the founders just take up all the air in the room. 
right? Theirs was the task, and nobly they performed it, right? They did it. And all that's left for us is we're the inheritors. We got lucky. Let's just, <laughs> you know, keep it, along. yeah, keep, keep it going. Uh, but uh, Lincoln is certain that that is a recipe for disaster. That is a recipe for national suicide. So there really, there really are significant tasks for, for succeeding generations. And he, uh, I think, tries to articulate that in the Lyceum Address, and he's articulated it again here. And it's, and it's why this speech you know, still has its power. We read this and we say, it is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us. And speaking of the task for us, you also talked about what this government means, what government for the people means. Um, would you speak about that, the common good, the, mora the moral content invested in that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so, I mean, j most fundamentally, the, the union is worth fighting for because the union has moral content. And that moral content um, is indicated by these prepositional phrases. Government of the people, by the people, for the people. So I, I think you could try to think through the meaning of each of those prepositions. Uh, I tried to do it very quickly in, uh, <laughs> in, the, uh, in the essay, but I, I think one could probably do, do more with it. Uh, what I hazarded is that uh, government of the people it just means uh, that sort of fundamental uh, act of founding. Right? Uh, it's, it's that originating consent, government of the people. Uh, the second one, government by the people, uh, this, is, this particular frame of government is one in which the people remain active. Right? It depends on their ongoing consent, uh, government actually by them uh, and through the act of uh, them choosing their representatives. Uh, and then finally, uh, government uh, for the people, right? for their good. That, that's the reference to the, to the common good. Uh, all government has to be dedicated to the safety and happiness of the people. Uh, uh, and maybe just one more note on prepositions. Of course. Uh, students <laughs> have lost the art of the preposition. Mm. <laughs> students today are not very familiar with prepositions. They don't know what preposition goes with what verb. They don't give much thought to what <laughs> preposition they choose. They sometimes leave prepositions out. Sometimes they double the prepositions when the prepositions should not be doubled. Uh, so, just for, from the viewpoint of grammar alone, this speech is worthy of study. It is a masterpiece of yeah, prepositional choice. In addition to everything else Lincoln is educating us in grammar as well. Yeah. It's amazing. Speaking of grammar, um, you did note that Lincoln did start a paragraph with the term oh. but, um, going <laughs> yeah. back a little bit here, but um, that would obviously offend some grammarians. So would you talk yeah. about what he was doing there, why he was redirecting energies in this way? Yeah, that is the uh, third and final paragraph, and he begins a paragraph with the word but. I say in the piece <laughs> that I think this may be the most significant use of the word but in the <laughs> English language. Wow. So... Uh, I, I believe that is the, the, the pivot of the speech. So he has said, we're met on the great battlefield of the war. We've come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. Full stop. Really? He could end the speech there, <laughs> right? 
This is what we came to do. We came to dedicate the cemetery. It's fitting and proper that we should do so. Full stop. But he's taking back a portion of what he just said because his aim in delivering this speech is something other than just that fitting and proper task. Uh, it's the, the larger task right, of, of rededication. And so the whole rest of the speech is, is, is dedicated to that. Very interesting. Just to kind of ask a final question, um, you write that as a nation, we have done better in extending freedom than in educating it. So I think maybe you're suggesting there that one of these tasks is um, kind of moral, civic, religious education going forward. Yeah, yeah. So the new birth of freedom is the extension of freedom to new groups, and that's surely right. But I don't think it should be seen as only that. Uh, so that the, the new birth of freedom really has to include the maturation of freedom. Uh, going back again to the Lyceum Address when he called for reason, he said that we, we, we won't really have proved that proposition that men are capable of self-government uh, until self-government rests on reason. So it doesn't seem to me that we're quite there yet. <laughs> Uh, but that the you know the best way to uh, to pursue this education is through reading the founding documents and yeah. through reading uh, reading Lincoln on the founding documents. Right. And, and Lincoln, I mean, himself provides an example of that. You talked about earlier how he studied the Declaration of the Constitution so much, it was largely self-taught, but he studied the main text of the nation, and that and that's a model for us, I guess you'd say. Yeah, hmm. yeah, uh, the, the study of the text and the and the discussion of them. What what does this mean for us? What does it mean about our our actions in the future? Um, all right, so to conclude, we have a bit of an um, over-under component in which we will suggest some topics, and you can tell us whether you think they are overrated or underrated. Topics. And perhaps explain Just, just have a little bit of fun. Okay, you did not prepare me for this. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> this, is a, we, this, okay. is a, this is a podcast sort of meme, like where they, they suggest <laughs> I see. Something. Okay, I don't know enough about this. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah, people just suggest topics, and you say whether the – the thing suggested is overrated or underrated, and just it's sort of supposed to be it's a fun. Just thumbs up, thumbs down. Kind Essentially, of. it's and, kind of you can explain if you want. You don't have to. It's supposed to be kind of fun. Commentary or yeah. not? Oh. If we need to. Okay. <laughs> right. All right, I'm ready. You want to go first? Okay. So, so to begin, how about Edward Everett's speech? <laughs> underrated. Underrated. Yeah, and Lincoln himself says that uh, he learned something from Everett's speech about the illegitimacy of secession. There's actually a nice section. Uh, where he talks about constitutional clauses and the way they show the illegitimacy of secession. Un underrated. Okay. I think I might know how you answer this based on what you've said already, but Lincoln's grammar, overrated or underrated? Underrated? Yeah, uh, underrated. Uh, there are times where Lincoln deliberately uses incorrect grammar. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Those are very interesting, but they're quite deliberate. <laughs> And I think in 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 many other he, he really was a student of grammar. His spelling was atrocious, but uh, <laughs> he was a student of grammar because grammar is logic. Yeah. Uh, and he cared about logic. Um, the use of Euclidean terms in everyday speech. 
um, non-existent. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we, we should we should use we 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 should uh, yeah we should uh, use more Euclid. Okay, um, I'm pro Euclid. Um, Dan, I know you wrote a piece for us on baseball as well. So uh, the phrase "baseball is America's greatest sport" overrated, underrated. Ah, uh, you can never say that enough. <laughs> so <Okay>. underrated. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. Um, and we'll do one more. I would say um, July Fourth picnic food. I guess oh, that, that could just. Well, yeah. What's your favorite? Food? I have no. Uh, yeah, of course, hot dogs and hamburgers and potato chips and watermelon. But uh, I have no. Um, no objection to picnic food, but what we really need to do on July 4th is uh, stage readings of the Declaration. Mm. Okay. So that's, one should yeah. just, uh, you know, around the, around the barbecue, yeah. read aloud the Read the, the Declaration, declaration yeah. yeah. Pass it around, have the kids yeah. read sentences. And Absolutely. That's a great idea. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you so very much for being here, and this was a fantastic discussion. Thank you. Thanks. I enjoyed it. If you'd like to read Diana's essay from our spring 2014 issue or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. Our new summer issue features essays on busting the college cartel, why conservatives struggle with identity politics, the American fascination with murder and novels and films, and much more. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening. 